0: Please be seated. You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. i I'm going to be looking at the first 12 verses of that chapter today. It's good to be back with you again. We began our missions conference in our church at Westminster Reformed in Suffolk uh, this uh, week, actually this Sunday, and it goes all the way through next Sunday. Evening, so I look forward to getting back for that. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. If you recall, if you were here last week, we began a, a two part series on what it means to abide in Jesus, to remain in Him, to abide in His words. And uh, as Dalton referred to in his prayer, uh, we hear the, the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, where Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We kind of unpacked that a little bit last week, and we saw that the uh, one of the impediments of remaining and abiding in Jesus and abiding in His Word is this whole notion of self-deception, that we are people that are easily self-deceived, that we, we can believe that we can <clears throat> kind of pull it all together, that we can find our own way. And so we kind of looked at that, and t- this morning we're going to look at what it really means to abide in Jesus. What does that look like? Jesus gives us a great picture of that in John chapter 15. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this is my Father, for this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Glenn McDonald is a pastor of Zion Presbyterian Church in Indiana, and is also the author of one of my favorite books, The Disciple-Making Church. And he tells a story about how uh, there was a construction project uh, that was right there on the highway that ran right beside Zion Presbyterian Church. And he said that uh, it was a, a project that seemed especially designed to uh, shape his character and sanctification for two years. And uh, one time he was in a hurry uh, to get someplace, and he accelerated so that he would make it through a particular stoplight uh, in this construction zone. And he found himself behind this little red car that was uh, just kind of confused by all the construction. The car would change lanes and then change back lane and then change lanes and finally just decided to straddle two lanes on its way through the construction zone. And uh, Glenn was really frustrated and uh, he didn't make it through the light. So he was sitting there fuming at the intersection and he was just thinking to himself, you know, I'm gonna, when this light turns green, I'm going to show this guy. And so when the light turned green, he raced past him and he kind of shot him a look. Then he thought to himself, you know, what am I doing? You know, I can't extend grace for even a half a second, even half a minute. Two days later, he got a voicemail uh, from a church member, and uh, the member said this, Glenn, you couldn't have known this, but the other day on 92nd Street, my wife and I were right behind you, when you were behind that little red car. I just wanted to tell you something. We were so moved. <laughs> we were so moved by how gracious and patient you were. Um, I would have gone crazy, but the way you responded has been an example to us these past two days. (laughs) I know exactly what he's feeling because I was behind that car yesterday. (laughs) Here's the point, that sometimes it's possible to imitate spiritual fruit. And sometimes we can even fool ourselves as we saw last week. We can never fool God. You know, the distance between where God calls us to be as Christians and where we actually are has sometimes been called the sanctification gap. And one of the challenges of spiritual growth is to identify the goals that Christ has set for us in His Word, plant a flag where we currently are, and by, by faith and humble dependence and reliance upon Him, to erase the distance between those two points. The process is often called growing in grace, growth in grace. And it always involves bearing spiritual fruit, which we're we're going to look at this morning. Of course, our Christ-likeness will not be complete until Jesus Himself completes us. But He calls us, nevertheless, to move forward. Maybe you're discouraged this morning because you've discovered that the sanctification gap in your life uh, may be deeper, and wider than you thought, kind of like what uh, Glenn McDonald discovered on his drive that day. Maybe you're skeptical because um, you, you want to grow, but you've tried and tried and tried to grow in certain areas of your life, and uh, nothing seems to change. Maybe you're just living in fear or anxiety, and you're just frozen in your tracks. If you are, you're in good company. because Jesus is addressing His disciples here, in chapter 15, and it's in the context of a discourse called the Farewell Discourse. Jesus is preparing His disciples for Him ultimately going to the cross. Opposition with uh, Jesus, against Jesus is mounting, and so their hearts are becoming troubled. They're becoming anxious and fearful. And then Jesus informs them that one of the disciples, one among them, is going to betray them, betray Him. So he starts out chapter 14 by these words do not let your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me Then he goes on to deal with kind of one of the fears that's kind of underlying all of their fears the fear of being left alone the fear of being abandoned And here in this chapter chapter 15 as long with 14 and 16 Jesus is basically saying I'm not going to leave you I'm not going to abandon you and In fact, I'm going to enable you to be transformed and to grow at the deepest levels possible. Not little cosmetic changes here and there in your marriage and your relationships and and other areas that you want to grow, but growth that is deep, that is enduring, and that bears much fruit. So we're going to look at this this morning and we're going to basically answer two questions uh, that I think that arise out of this text. The questions are these. uh, First of all, where is the power to be transformed? Where is the power to grow? And I walk with Christ. And the second one was, what is the process? What does the process of growth and fruit bearing look like? Let's look at verse 5 for some answers. Verse 5 and verse 7, give us some clues. Where do we find the power to grow, to be transformed? Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So in verse 5, he kind of states things in the negative. He says that apart from me, you can do nothing. We're pretty powerless, aren't we? In verse 7, he states it in the positive. He says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I mean, talk about power. That's incredible power. Where do we find that power to grow? Well, our culture answers that uh, pretty succinctly. It directs us to look within. Look inside yourself. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of college football, and a lot of times I'll, I'll hear a post-game interview from a certain coach, and they rallied from way behind, and then they won. And, and then they said, you know, we just went in the locker room, and we looked in ourselves, and we summoned up all the courage and all of the uh, energy that we had to... to, to uh, to bear, to to win this game, and bring it out. Our culture directs us to look within, but is that true of your own experience? You know, if you struggle with depression, can you just kind of look within and summon yourself to all of a sudden become a joyful person? If you struggle with fear or anxiety, can you just kind of look within and all of a sudden become a confident person, just kind of pull out this confidence? Maybe in the short term. Where does Jesus direct us to look? He says just the opposite from our culture. He says that something outside of you has to flow within you. So that the visible or the invisible internal fruit of your heart, fruit like joy and peace and confidence that he's talking about in chapters 14, 15, and 16, become external and visible realities in your life. Let me say that again. Something outside of you has to flow within you so that the invisible internal fruit of the heart become invisible and external realities in your life. That's a mouthful, and it sounds pretty complicated and complex, and so Jesus gives us a great illustration to help us understand this. He gives us the illustration of a branch and a vine. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. My father's the vine dresser. He's saying... um, You know, there's this organic, life-giving connection between the vine and the branch. Jesus is saying, I don't want to have some, just this this casual relationship with you. Like we have casual relationships among our friends and and work associates. Jesus is saying, I want to have a life-giving, organic, vital union with you. And down through church history, that union has often been called mystical. Perhaps you've heard that in in a theology uh, seminar, maybe Uh, Camper has been teaching uh, on the mystical union of Christ. And that's a very apt term because Scripture really doesn't define exactly how that union takes place. But we do know that our union with Christ is uh, our source of spiritual life. And along with that, we have the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. The sap that runs between the vine and the branch reminds me of the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit a few um, months ago, we had a microburst in our neighborhood. This was before the uh, hurricane. And a microburst, if you know, is, is kind of a tornado that kind of touches down or touches and goes. And it uh, touched down in our neighborhood or very close to our neighborhood. And we had about 40 pine trees uh, or so that were about 30 to 50 feet tall. Uh, some of them were broken at the tops. And some of them were laying on the ground on power lines. And it was very disconcerting. And and so our neighbors got together, and we were lugging uh, pine branches and pine cones to the street in big piles. And we had sap all over us. We were just covered with sap in our hands and our clothes. We were complaining about it. You know, sap is suggestive of the work of the Holy Spirit. And chapter 15 and chapter 16 are two of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible about the Holy Spirit and His work and His presence in our life. And think about this, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says, uh, uh, you know, what produces the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. It's the fruit of what? The fruit of determination? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Think about this, the Holy Spirit is the most powerful agent of change in all of creation. The Holy Spirit is eternal and omnipresent. When the Holy Spirit moved over the waters at God's command of the creation, the earth and all in it was formed. That's power. When He uh, overshadowed uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she conceived our Savior. The Holy Spirit worked mightily through our Savior's life, throughout Christ's life, and accomplished His resurrection. The Spirit uh, takes us when we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And He uh, brings us to life. And He makes us spiritually alive. And as the counselor, the Holy Spirit comforts us and pours His love into us and fills our heart with joy. This is the Spirit that can accomplish every God-pleasing desire and change and uh, transformation that you long for. Think about that. Jesus said in verse 7, Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now, talk about power. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be given to you. He's not talking about here, let me clarify a few things. You know, If you're a student at William & Mary, uh, or maybe in high school, he's not talking about you know, having a D- minus average all the way through the semester and then praying you know, on the final exam that you're going to make an A for the course. He's not talking about winning the, lot, the lottery next week. What he is talking about here is that every God-pleasing change that brings you glory is ours for the asking. That's great power. That should be encouraging this, this morning. So there's the, the power. Where's the power for, ch- for changing? We see that it's, it's, it's uh, abiding in Christ. It's, seeing, uh, it's the Spirit of God abiding in us, dwelling in us, working in us, empowering us. So what's the process of change? That's the second point this morning. What does this process of change look like? If you'll turn back with me to verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This growth process takes place by something that God does and something that we do. Let's look first of all at what God does. Jesus says that God is the vine dresser and he prunes the branches. I don't know a lot about um, gardening. Uh, yesterday, in between games and at halftime, I'd run out and I would hack away at a vine that's growing up through one of our bushes and onto our house. And so I have these nice uh, cuts on my hand. My wife was out in the front; she was tending to her um, uh, impatience, and so she's much better gardener, uh, gardener, much re- more refined than I am. And she was doing something that she loves to do. She likes to squeeze the little uh, seed pods, and she makes she comes in, she tells me about it. She makes this little noise. It goes. Poof. Okay. And she likes to see the, the uh, seed pods just kind of poof through the air. I don't know much about gardening, but I was reading a, a commentator that knows much more about me, and he describes um, the growth of grapes and grapevines in a way that really I could really re- resonate with. And I picked out three things that, that really, you know, kind of um, spoke into my life. First of all, uh, there's the process of pinching. Uh, pinching to remove uh, growing tips uh, on the branch so that they, uh, they won't grow too rapidly. Now, that sounds a little strange. You know, why would you want to squeeze or pinch the tip so it won't grow too rapidly? You know, when you become a Christian, wouldn't it be really cool if God would plug us into a docking station like an iPod and He would just download uh, the Bible into our memory? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? We think, uh, you know, we struggle to remember as we we get older. um, And wouldn't it be nice if God would just, all the things that He wants us to know and to meditate on, He would just uh, core dump them right down into our memory. But He knows the rate at which He wants us to grow. You know, we're learning things. We're learning theology. We're learning uh, new songs. And I I love the songs here at Grace Covenant because they're so rich in gospel truth as we sing them together. But God knows the rate that He wants us to grow. And and he knows that uh, when we start relying on our knowledge about Jesus, then it'll keep us perhaps from depending on Jesus. This was the problem in the Corinthian church, and the Apostle Paul would address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, "Don't you know, Corinthians? You know, you're learning, and you're learning so much, but don't you know that knowledge, in the end, puffs up, but love builds up." So there's this pruning process of pinching. Then there's also a, a pruning process known as thinning. Thinning. Thinning the great clusters enables the rest of the branch to bear more fruit. Now, you know, when this, I see this taking place, it always seems kind of counterintuitive to me because you, you just want the branch to, to uh, bear as much fruit or foliage as it possibly can. But if you actually uh, thin out the clusters, it's going to bear much more fruit. And I think about this in my own life, and and I think about um, how some of the fruit of my life, like patience, is kind of clustered around certain things. My patience, by and large, is clustered around my uh, easygoing wife, my very lovable yellow lab, and uh, some of my easygoing friends and some of the folks that I counsel uh, and, and pastor in Suffolk. But God has this way of putting uh, kind of uh, difficult and demanding people into my life. And then my wife has the gall to disagree with the way I'm handling difficult and disagreeable people. And so I'm not even patient with her anymore. And then God has this way of stretching me until I'm thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And then I look back on the process and I see how God has developed uh, this, this deeper, richer patience in my life. And this gentleness, gentleness with people. And the self-control. He also cuts away the suckers. These are things that take away the nutrients of the plant or the vine. And he snips those away. God exposes my idols, my God replacements. Things that I turn to to draw life and satisfaction and substance from. And God is snipping and cutting and cutting and snipping. And his pruning is so painful... Many times and often in my life, but some of you are coming to rely on Jesus on ways that you'd never thought you would before. So in this process, there's something that God does. He's the vine dresser. He prunes us. But there are several things that we do. And um, let's look at verse 7. One of the things that we do is is we are to abide in His word. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done to you. Now, this is a challenge for us as 21st century people. One of the biggest challenges of living in this century is is that we're very distracted, aren't we? We're just very distracted. We have iPads and iPhones. We have Droids. We have Wees. Uh, we have Nintendos. We have MacBooks. We have desktops. I mean, is real? You know, if you if you think about it, is anybody really reading their Bibles anymore? Even in the church we know that fruit-bearing will only happen if we read and memorize and meditate on God's Word. In fact, how can you abide in His Word unless you know what His Word says? One of the best parts about abiding in His Word and having His Words abide in us is we don't go at it alone. Uh, listen to these words by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, In other words, the richness of the Word is shared together and keeps us focused on Christ. There's also something else we do besides abiding in God's Word. Uh, We also abide in His love. Look with me in verse 9 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love as the Father has loved me. You know, how do we abide in, in God's love? Well, He gives us the perfect analogy. There's no greater illustration, there's no greater analogy that He can pull from. It's the love of the Father for the Son. You know, if you think about it, most of the things that we struggle with come from a failure to abide in His love. I don't want to be overly reductionistic. I do counsel people uh, every week and you know, and I'm, um, you know, right there in front of them, and they're struggling with pain, and just some great difficulties in their life. But you know, if you really think about things, if you think about what the issue of worry and anxiety is all about, all about, isn't it forgetting the the love of Jesus for you? I mean, when you really get down to it. Or what is bitterness? You know, it can be very complex, and you're wading through it, and it's taking weeks and months to sort through a person's bitterness but but you know when you really get to the crux of it isn't bitterness really just forgetting uh his mercy for us that's grounded in his eternal love for us we get to verse 10 and we're kind of puzzled by that and you think what do you what about verse 10 dan if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love what does that mean Does that mean that if we keep God's commandments and we do so perfectly, we're going to somehow earn God's love, that we're going to merit God's affection for us? That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. In fact, the very standard that Jesus gives us is that He's already loved us. That's the standard He's given us. And there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that if we really don't love other people, we think we do, but we really don't. If we don't really bear fruit, we kind of think we do, but we're really not bearing fruit, then the, there's the danger of divine judgment. Jesus is very clear about that in verse 6. He doesn't mince words. But here's the good news. The good news is that if we're united to Christ by faith, if, if there's that union with Christ and we know Him by faith, then we really can love. We can love Him. We can love each other. And that love, is an infinite supply. That's good news. A few years ago, I was reading an article in the uh, Journal of Biblical Counseling, and the title, when I got uh, a fresh copy, a new copy, uh, the title just really riveted my attention. The title was called The Self-Irrigating Christian. I think, what is that all about? It was written by a pastor by the name of Tim Farley, and Tim Farley was driving through Napa Valley a few years ago on a lazy June day, and uh, there were grapevines for miles and miles as far as the eye could see. And he stopped uh, to take it all in, and, and he got in a conversation with a sun-weathered foreman out there working on uh, uh, the grapevines, and out there with the, uh, the other workers. And they just kind of struck up a conversation, and uh, Tim Farley asked him, he said, you know, how, how old are these vines? And to his shock and amazement, the foreman said, well, some of these vines or over 100 years old. And he went on to say that, um, you know, the flavor doesn't really concentrate into the grape until uh, three or four decades into the growth process. (laughs) So if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, take heart, okay? But you know what, this is what really astounded him and and really astounds me. He said that um, just kind of, um, he kind of threw this out here because Tim would have no categories for asking about the roots. And so the foreman said, you know, some of these older vines, you know, the ones that are 60, 70, 80 years old, their roots reach, they go down about 40 feet below the surface. They're just continually pushing down below the soil. 40 feet below the surface. And and those roots reach a subsurface water table. And that little root just kind of taps into the water aquifer. And become self irrigating. Can you imagine? What if our lawns, what if our blades of grass would go down 40 feet and you never had to water your lawn ever? Wouldn't that be really cool? Just think about that. And Tim Farley's point was this when our taproot, where our taproot of faith goes for nourishment, determines our fruitfulness. Some believers' roots rise to the visible world for substance. They have shallow roots. They go on the surface. They live for what they can detect by the five senses. I know that's, that's, that could be my proclivity. But oh, to have those roots that push down to the aquifer of God's love. The hymn writer says it best when he says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, Unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, there it is, all around me is the current of thy love. So the second thing we do is we remain, we abide in God's love, that the taproot of our faith pushes down to the subterraneal water tables of that vast reservoir of God's love. There's a third thing that we do. We abide in God's Word. We abide in His love. But the third thing that we do is this, that we love one another. That we love one another. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus is saying basically the change, transformation, and growth and grace is a community project. You know, think about this. The disciples um, were all very different individuals. I know a lot of times, you know, we, uh, we think of them as this band of brothers, the three musketeers, the twelve musketeers, you know, all for one and one for all. Uh, but they were very different people. In fact, uh, the Gospel according to Luke records that during the Lord's Supper, during the same setting, when these conversations were taking place, with Jesus and his disciples, a dispute arose among the disciples about which one of them would be the greatest. And oftentimes, when you think about that, we often make the basis of our relationships being with people that are similar to us or at least easy to get along with. We see here in this text that the foundation of our relationships should be Jesus. His perfect life. His sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. That's the foundation for doing relationships, for being in relationship. And when we are significant players in relationship with one another, we experience the fullness of God and Jesus, and we are pressed into abiding and depending upon Jesus like never before. In other words, our relationships just stay on the surface. friend of mine told me a story about a man named John. He was a deacon in his church. I'll call him John. That's not his real name. And, uh, you know, he worked in sales all of his life. And um, he traveled Monday through Friday. Get back on Friday. He's a deacon in the church, and so Friday, you know, weekend was all about church. He was the first one there to unlock the door, get the AC set, get everything set up. Often the last one to leave, close up things. He'd be a greeter, one of the friendliest guys you'd meet at this church. But uh, John had a secret. He led a double life. Even his wife of 30 years and his kids didn't know his double life. He was an alcoholic. They never or rarely saw him drink at home. He would drink on the road when he was making sales calls, Monday through Friday. And uh, he had this double life that he led. And it was just the pressure of the job for those 30 years, uh, the loneliness of the travel, of the demands of his boss, the uh, fickleness of his clients, it just started to mount. And so he, he experienced this cycle that some of us, you know, might have felt in our life or, or still do, this, this, this cycle of feeling sh- ashamed and powerless during the week. And so he goes to church to get his motor going on the weekends and you know, just hoping to earn God's favor, somehow atone for his secret. Then in a particular sermon series, my friend told me the the gospel just providentially, supernaturally, just became alive to, to John. For the first time in his life, he, he realized that Jesus lived a perfect life. And that there was nothing that, that John could do to earn God's love or his righteousness. It was given to him. And so one day, on a Monday, driving out of town, he stopped drinking. I know that's not the norm for people that struggle with alcoholism. I'm not saying that it is. It's a long, arduous process. But for that one day, began the process of sobriety. What happened to John? The Gospel became alive to him. You see that they the taproot of faith found the aquifer of God's love. And so all of a sudden, John began to look forward to Mondays because Monday was the day, beginning Monday through Friday, that he would experience the power of God of abiding in Christ and bearing the fruit of self-control and joy and the fruit of dependence and faith in Christ. Then he looked forward to coming back on Friday Friday through Sunday, because that was the day where you connect with God's people and you don't atone for your secrets, but you serve God and you love others. So every day, every month, on the month of his anniversary of sobriety, he goes to my friend and he says this, one year sober, pastor. Two years sober, pastor. Four years sober. Sober faster. Pastor, five years sober. Because Jesus was the joy of John's life. What about you? I want you to ask yourself this morning, very carefully, where are you hurting right now? Where is it? Is it a relationship? Could it be that God is pruning you? Remain in Jesus. Abide in Jesus and rest in Him. Let's pray.